The following program is being brought to you on the 7th Wave Network. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit 7thWaveNetwork.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome. You've entered the realm of 1111 Talk Radio. Your host is Simran Singh. It's time to discover your own language with the universe. Learn to empower yourself, broaden your mind, open your heart, and discover who you are. Now, here's your host, Simran Singh. Welcome. The past year has been an incredible adventure, an adventure of truly wanting to prove everything that I've been talking about and speaking about in the last year. And the one thing that I know, based on my own book, Conversations with the Universe, is that the universe always brings me the exact conversations and messages to assist in that process for me and assist in that process for other people. The last year on the Rebel Road was one to really prove that these laws of the universe worked, that we were powerful individuals, and that we could live without a plan, that we could truly let go of the control and allow ourselves to be supported by just sharing our gifts, by just sharing our own unique genius with the world. And in doing so, I put on this one-woman show, and I went around, and I happened to encounter some of the systems that stand up and get in our way at times, and that would be the legal system, and that would be uh, many of the the, the systems of, of government and, and different issues that seem to come up that allow us to believe that we can't take the steps. So I'm really, really excited to have a new three-part series with an amazing man that is doing incredible work to really illustrate that there are places that we can now move beyond, that there is a new world that is emerging, a new story that is emerging, one that really goes beyond what we have believed to be possible. And he has really written some incredible books that I'm going to share with you, but the one that we're going to focus on is The More Beautiful World Our Hearts Know is Possible. Charles Eisenstein is a speaker, writer, focusing on themes of civilization, consciousness, money, and human cultural evolution. His viral short films and essays online have established him as a genre-defying social philosopher and a countercultural intellectual. Charles Eisenstein graduated from Yale University in 1989 with a degree in mathematics and philosophy and spent the next 10 years as a Chinese-English translator. He is the author of Sacred Economics and the Ascent of Humanity. And as I said, we are talking about the more beautiful world our hearts know is possible. Welcome, Charles, to 1111 Talk Radio. Thank you, Simran. It is um, wonderful to speak with you, and when you go on your website, the quote that you have right there up on the front, which is, when any of us meet someone who rejects dominant norms and values, we feel a little less crazy for doing the same. Any act of rebellion or non-participation, even on a very small scale, is therefore a political act, and that just resonates so much with me, especially with what I have just experienced in the world myself. And you've been living this life truly from your heart, allowing yourself to share your gifts with the world, and really proving to yourself many of the concepts 
that you write about and, and allowing people that resonate with you to not only support you, but to also have the courage through your example. Can you talk a little bit about initially stepping into that place to, number one, have the courage to speak this truth of yourself, and number two, to let go of things uh, in the way that they won't even come crumbling in your own life, uh, to step into allowing and receiving and knowing that this path that you were speaking about was, in fact, something that would support you. Yeah, you know, I think it, um, it might actually be disempowering for people to uphold me as, you know, some special example of courage. I don't think I'm actually, uh, you know, tremendously courageous. Um, and, and, you know, the way I stepped into this was partly because nothing else was working, partly because I felt like I had no choice. You know, circumstances were arranged to make this the natural next step. Um, so I, I think that this is something that is happening to a lot of people now. You know, it's not like all of a sudden one day they wake up and they've gotten the courage together to live in greater trust or uh, generosity or something like that or to, to you know, change their job or their relationship, uh, to step out of something that that wasn't resonating with their hearts. I think it's more like there's this ripening process and all of a sudden one day it's it's just the natural next step. And, and so I think like... I don't know. I mean, I feel flattered, but I don't think that I'm super courageous. Um, well, I, in my yeah. opinion, in reading your book, I think that there's a similarity because I really also tell people that courage is not about overcoming fear. It really is about the step-by-step process of getting out of conformity, of stepping out of our excuses and our own servitude and bondage that we've, we've gotten into. And so... I do feel like you illustrate that example, um, and, and, and I, too, also believe that we're not here to be teachers or gurus, but really, in being that active example, uh, we, we, we able people to have the ability to know that they, too, can do the same when they're ready. I guess that's more of where I was going with yeah. it. Yeah, and so, yeah, so it's kind of contagious. Each person exactly. who, who takes that step... You know, even if, like, your friends and parents, relatives are, like, telling you this is crazy or irresponsible, that's a common one, or impractical, idealistic, so on, even if they're telling you that, your choice still affects them underneath and makes their world of normal, practical, realistic, and so on, uh, just a little more tenuous and, and enables them when their moment comes, to step out more easily. So I think that, you know, we're all kind of uh, helping each other or enlightening each other. Um, it's it, Yeah, I like to say enlightenment is a group process. I know that as I was going around the country this past year, a lot of the concerns that I heard from people did have to do with money and did have to do with believing that we are here that we have to work, we have to toil, uh, we have to follow the systems, that we're kind of uh, constrained by the world that we live in. And in the beginning, in the acknowledgments of this wonderful book, The More Beautiful World Our Hearts Know Is Possible, you state, it was just four years ago that my work was nearly unknown and I was bankrupt, working part-time in construction, writing in whatever moment single fatherhood allowed, 
It is through the generosity of countless friends and supporters that my life has changed so radically since then. Just give an example of how your life has changed, not from a place of, of people being pipe dream in the sky that, okay, I can just abandon everything that I have and just do it, understanding that there was a process and there were steps and, and you had to go through what you had to go through to get to this point as well. Uh, but, but where you have come in the last three years by being willing to even take that step. You're asking um, how, how I became willing to take the step? I'm asking, just to give an idea that when we take those steps and we're willing to go into that mm-hmm. unknown place, um, what is possible? As an ah, yes. Well, when we step into the unknown place, what's possible uh, is all the things that uh, we don't know how to create uh, or that we don't even know exist. If, if we're operating according to what we know how to accomplish, uh, to the, to, you know, if we're operating within the theory of change or the theory of causation that we grew up in and that our culture impresses onto us, then we're only capable of accomplishing the things that are possible within that framework, which isn't very much. I mean, it depends on what you want to do. You know, if you want to become, say, a realtor, uh, there is a pretty clear map of how to do that. You know, you study the material, you take a real estate course, you know, you pass the test, then you, right, there's, there's, there's a map. But a lot of us are now, either we, we want to get somewhere that, that, that there's no path that we know of, uh, or we have a sense that there is a destination, um, but we don't even know what it is. And so to, to get to those places, there's no other way, I think, than to uh, enter that in-between place of, uh, of unknowing, um, of, of emptiness. Um, of, it's the part that follows breakdown very often. So it's not something, yeah, so, so I guess it's something that's, that's happening to a lot of people when their lives or some part of their lives falls apart either through, you know, a marriage crisis or a work crisis or a health crisis that, that you know, the normal falls apart. And then the things that we couldn't see become visible. And, and it, part of that also happens to be because of where many people are. You, you have a section in the beginning where it talks about breakdown, and definitely there are systems around us that are attempting to break down that that would appear to be chaos, but feel chaotic, and it causes a lot of fear. But you write that it is quite normal to fear what one most desires, that we desire to transcend the story of the world that has come to enslave us, that indeed is killing the planet. We fear what the end of the story will bring, the demise of much that is familiar. And so to me that was really, really powerful because... The very thing that we want, we also fear, so we push it away, yet it's coming anyway. Talk a little bit about, about that, that whole enmeshment of all of that and how, how that, that part, that, that fear part is so normal, and yet we still can let that go and go into that unknown. Yeah, I, I don't tend to see fear as uh, the big enemy that must be overcome. That's, uh, to me, another retelling of the kind of heroic story of conquering the enemy, uh, which is itself part of the, the uh, 
old narrative, um, the narrative of conquest and and uh, really originating in the war on nature. You know, so I think that um, fear is a natural part of the process. And at some point, what was once really, really scary becomes less scary. Uh, it, it, that, you know, our courage expands, and the things that were outside the boundaries of our courage uh, now are within the boundaries. And something that had been unthinkable before becomes like, yeah, you know, I might be able to do that. You know, it's still maybe a little scary, but, but I'm ready for that step. So I, I advocate more of um, an attitude of, of self-trust and trusting, trusting oneself to have the courage in the moment when the action is necessary and ready. I, I was reading a book uh, about people who do like these heroic things, and often one thing that, that, that's in common within, among all these stories is that and when the moment of action comes, they don't even think about it. Like there was the guy, there was, there was an epileptic person who fell in front of the, on, an oncoming subway car in New York. And this man calmly takes his two kids, pushes them over to a stranger, jumps down under, you know, to the tracks, grabs the guy, and, and, and wrestles him into the, the kind of well underneath you know, where the train is. You know, and it runs right over them, like like missing them by a hair's breadth, like a yeah. fraction of a second. And and afterwards, he was asked, you know, why did you do that? And he said, he, he said, I didn't even make a choice. It was just what I had to do in the moment. And that's like, I can't think of something more courageous than that. Yet, it wasn't a process of struggle that got him there. Now, we might, you know ask about his life and what has made him into a person who, at that moment, among all the people there, he was the one who did that. That would be, you know, an interesting inquiry. But, uh, but my immediate takeaway from it is that um, to achieve courage, to take the next step into the more beautiful lives that we sense are possible, it's our, our habits of struggle um, may be part of the problem and not part of the solution, which I'm not saying like that, that in our lives we should never struggle, never fight, never seek to control circumstances and so on. But those responses have become habits and they are uh, inculcated in us by our educational system, by our, by our whole culture. You know, that's the way to improve yourself. That's the way to solve problems. That's the way to create change. And I think that, that, um, you know, we over-apply that way of being to, to pretty much everything. Uh, and we need to make room for patience with ourselves, for stillness, for intuition, for the slow ripening of courage and knowledge and clarity. That's where I'm coming from, all of that. Yeah, that, that really came out clearly when you were speaking about the struggle. And, and throughout the book, you, you clearly indicate there's an old story and there's a new story. And it's... Is struggle just really deeply embedded in that old story, along with perhaps feelings that there's just always been something wrong? I mean, even the even the story of creation illustrates that we fell, that something was wrong. And so have we just taken stories, both mythological, real, 
uh, religious, and, and really embedded deeply within ourselves, this belief in our wrongness or this belief in struggle and, and our own uh, falling, that, that, that we have to get to the core of that to even begin to fathom that there could be a new story. Yeah, I think that's um, part of the healing process, uh, a kind of self-acceptance and forgiveness of self, which also, of course, extends to other people, because when you understand that, oh, yeah, all of those things that, uh, all of the, the, the bad things I've done, you know, all of the harm I've created, all of the... Uh, flaws that I see in myself, whatever they, they might be, you know, selfishness or impatience or greed or, or, or you know, whatever, um, whatever things that we've done that we're not proud of. And, and, and we, we, when we look back on those and we say, oh, I know why I was doing that. You know, it was just because I wanted to be heard. It was just because I wasn't held enough when I was a baby and I have a craving for that. You know, it's just because I'm missing connection in my life. So, if, so, so that's why I became addicted to overeating or shopping, you know. Like when we recognize the unmet needs that are beautiful needs, then we also look at other people and we understand the same thing about them. So blame becomes basically illogical, not something that we have to fight against out of our spiritual teachings that say, you know, blame and victim mentality are bad and fight against those, and then you will manifest a better life, but they simply become illogical. They become untrue. So, so yeah, I think this is, you know, a, an important part of our healing and also um, something that we can translate into political action even, uh, which is, you know, political discourse now is so based on blame and judgment. You know, whatever and I don't know if your listeners are liberal or conservative or what, but it doesn't matter because if you can read, you know, the Huffington Post or Fox News, and the undercurrent is the same, which is those astonishingly awful people on the other side, how could they? You know, it's, it's the same meta-narrative. So I think as long as we hold on to that meta-narrative, um, whether it's on a political level or a personal level, uh, we're going to end up with pretty much the same thing that we have right now. Author of, sacred author of Sacred Economics and the Ascent of Humanity, Charles Eisenstein says we are here to create something beautiful, and he calls it the more beautiful world our hearts know is possible. Sometimes it is necessary to live a lie to its fullest before we're ready to take the next step into the truth. The lie of separation in the age of usury is now complete. We have explored its fullness, its farthest extremes, and seen all it has wrought, the deserts and the prisons, the concentration camps and the wars, the wastage of the good, the true, and the beautiful. Now the capacities we have developed through the long journey of ascent will serve us as well in the imminent age of reunion. Those words were from his book, Sacred Economics, and there is so much more powerful uh, in both of his other books as well, The Ascent of Humanity and The More Beautiful World Our Hearts Know is Possible. This is by Charles Eisenstein, and you can connect with him in all of his work, his talks, his blogs, his videos at charleseisenstein.net. That's Charles Eisenstein, E-I-S-E-N-S-T-E-I-N.net. We'll be right back. 
change. The Seventh Wave Channel on the Voice America Network. Have you seen 1111? Do you wonder why certain numbers keep showing up in your life? 11, 111, 22, 33, 444. People all over the world are seeing 1111 and learning the language of universal communication. Subscribe to 1111 Magazine today. www.1111mag.com 1111 Magazine is a bi-monthly print publication that offers a rich, multi-sensory experience. As you engage with experts and topics of consciousness, become enlightened, empowered, and energized so you live a passionate and authentic life of conscious choices. 1111 Magazine, a daily staple for lifting the mindset, discovering the heart, and stepping into conscious living. 1111 Magazine. Order now at www.1111mag.com. 1111mag.com. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. The 7th Wave Channel on the Voice America Network. listening to 1111 Talk Radio. If you would like to join today's discussion, please call in toll-free at 1-866-472-5795. Again, 1-866-472-5795. You may also send an email to Simron at simron-singh.com. Now back to 1111 Talk Radio with Simron Singh. In humanity's childhood, a money system that embodied and demanded growth, the taking of more and more from the earth, was perhaps appropriate. It was an integral part of the story of ascent. Today, it is rapidly becoming obsolete. It is incompatible with adult love, with co-creative partnership, and with the graduation into the estate of a giver that becomes with uh, adulthood. That is the deep reason why no financial or economic reform can possibly work that does not include a new kind of money. The new money must embody a new story, one that treats nature not only as a mother, but as a lover, too. We still have a need for money for a long time to come, because we need magical symbols to reify the story of the people, to apply it to the physical world as a creative template. The essential character of money will not change. It will consist of magical talismans, whether physical or electronic, through which we assign roles, focus intention, and coordinate human activity. This is from one of Charles Eisenstein's books entitled Sacred Economics. He is also the author of The Ascent of Humanity and the latest book that we're discussing today, The More Beautiful World Our Hearts Know is Possible. You can connect with him and all of his work at charleseisenstein.net. So definitely do that and tap into his blogs, his talks, the other works that he's doing in his videos. Welcome back, Charles. I want to talk a little bit about that place of 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 grief and hurt and pain that sits in our stories that we don't want to face. I think we are an addicted to society to doom and gloom and to reality television and to drama and trauma mm-hmm. because we don't want to look at it within ourselves first and foremost, yet it is going to show up on this collective level. Speak to the pain and the grief that rests both in the inner world and the outer world. Well, yeah, for one thing, um, a certain amount of pain and grief is, I think, unavoidable in this world. 
because we it's a world of life and death. Even in uh, a perfect society, you know, people are going to die. You know, sometimes bad things happen, and it hurts. So, uh, you know, I'm not... I don't think anyone is talking about eliminating all pain and grief, but beyond that healthy normal amount, in our world, there is tremendous excess pain and grief generated by our system, by our collective behavior. One of the um, basic principles of, of my work that I'm, that I'm drawing on is the idea of interbeing, uh, a term coined I am told by Thich Nhat Hanh, the, the Vietnamese monk. Um, so interbeing basically says that, that who you are is the totality of all of your relationships, that anything that's happening in the world is therefore happening to yourself, that every relationship you have mirrors something inside of you and so on. And if that's the case, then everything happening in the world, including the the economic exploitation, the, the child labor, the human trafficking, the ecocide, the mountaintop removal, you know, the fracking, the, the dying of the rainforests, of the oceans, like all this stuff is happening to us too, which generates a tremendous wound um, that we cannot insulate ourselves from. Even if we live in the most idyllic gated community, it comes in through the through the you know, underneath the surface. Uh, so I think that a lot of like the doom and gloom stuff out there you were talking about, it is actually kind of serving a role. People are attracted to it because it gives expression, allows them to feel this, this pain, which they, they don't know where it's from. You know, the pain is, um, we have an ideology kind of that, that, that says the pain can be avoided. The pain can be, narcotized, it can be suppressed, um, but really the pain is a symptom of a world out of balance, and until we uh, give it space to, to, you know, until we give it acknowledgement, attention, um, and trace it to its source, and grieve the things that need to be grieved, uh, all of the, the horrors that are happening on this planet, until we do that, there will, no, no, there will be no uh, deep healing. Um, the reason pain exists is to direct attention, in fact. Uh, in the body, it directs attention to uh, a hurting place, allowing healing resources to go there or allowing you to protect that part or giving you a message that there's something wrong there. You know, pain is a call for attention. So I think we need to... to um, you know, instead of distracting ourselves from it or diverting the pain onto, you know, whatever, a soap opera drama or something like that, we need to really sit with it and have spaces, you know, circles, you know, communities, groups that where we can feel it safely uh, and, and trace it to, to the source, you know, in the deep wounds that we've all suffered living in the kind of society that we live in. And I'm not saying, like, you know, we should stop everything and just do healing, right? But, but this is an important part of um, personal development and activism. Yeah, I think a lot of people don't go into the pain because they feel perhaps if they go into those places of deep hurt, they may never come out. But they're so deep, in fact, 
that they may end up sinking into them and being swallowed up by them. But there's this other spectrum of people that also want to stay in this completely altruistic place, and, and that can also be equally dangerous. So can you talk a little bit about that place and how we kind of get to a middle place where we don't get so new agey or so altruistic that we we completely abandon all idea of action or activator, being an activator or an activist, uh, and, and, and also where we don't fall into the place where we are so uh, buried by our own emotion that we can't be activators or activists. Right. Okay, yeah. So, so yeah, you've described two poles here. Uh, the first being wallowing in the pain, you know, everything's about your healing, you know, doom and gloom, and, and people are afraid to go there because of the, the vast gulf of pain that's opened up when they do. Um, but I think that our healing process has its own wisdom. And when people get stuck in it, often it's because... Um, well, Caroline Mace describes this, this really well, that, that people get some kind of psychological benefit from their wounds, use them to manipulate other people. Uh, she gives examples of, you know, the woman who, you know, in two minutes into her first conversation is already talking about how she was abused as a child, you know, and using that to get sympathy, you know, getting benefits from that. And, and, or, or using these past events as a way to validate oneself, uh, you know, look how much I've suffered, therefore I deserve. You know, look how much I've suffered, therefore I'm excused from this, that, or the other thing. So I think that that those are the things to be aware of. But when we're aware of those and we don't do those things, then we have, you know, our, our bodies know how much healing is ready to happen at any time. And so you go into that, maybe you go to a grief circle or something like that, or you're, or um, therapy or, or, you know, some safe situation where you can feel things and then you're done for a while. You know, it's clear. And that doesn't mean that there's not more, but right now it's done and then you're back in action. So it's not um, a matter of, you know, wallowing in the grief forever. Uh, it wants to be felt. And, and once it's felt, maybe a few times, then it's done. Unless we perpetuate it by leveraging it to gain some kind of psychological pay, payback. So the other pole you talked about then is, is the altruistic pole, uh, which we might call spiritual bypass. Uh, so you might, you, know, you might latch on to New Age teachings like, it's all good, everything is happening for a reason, you know, all is playing out as it's meant to play out, there is no evil, et cetera, et cetera. On, on, on some metaphysical level, that's all true, but it is an avoidance of what is coming up for attention. And you could kind of add a paradoxical twist to teachings like that. For example, yeah, it's all good, and that includes the perception sometimes that it's all terribly wrong. And if you bypass that state of being, of it's all terribly wrong, with the dogma that it's all good, you're actually, on a deeper level, rejecting that it's all good, because you're rejecting this part of the overall perfection. Does that mm. make sense? Yeah. 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 So, so, yeah, um, I think we, we um, want, you know, if you, if you commit spiritual bypass, then the wounds that want attention, the grief that wants to be felt, it'll say... 
darn it, I'll have to try again. And so it will continue to bring up situations that call louder and louder. Uh, it'll engineer life occurrences that will trigger the grief, the frustration, the rage, and so on. So I think it's better when they come up um, to not avoid them with spiritual teachings. You know, I, I did a one-woman show this year, and part of that show I would get up on stage and I would talk to people about tapping into this divine spark, this unique genius that we each have. And and, and part of, of that section was, was about that there really is nothing. It's about being the creative rebel and that there's nothing to save, fix, or heal on the outside, and there really is nothing to save, fix, or heal on the inside. It's more so about diving into that unique genius and allowing the inspiration that bubbles up to then be the solutions to the very things outside that are present. And you alluded to something very similar when you talked about a gentleman by the name of Frank. Uh, and he was, he was exploring cereal box labels and, and finding uh, correlations as to what they were meaning and that sort of thing. Uh, talk a little bit about the, the genius that we each bring and how if we really just allow ourselves to give in the gift of who we are, that, that it does allow... Uh, uh, us to be supported, that it does allow things to organically unfold, because I think that's a, a, a challenging concept for many people who are very locked into being um, the replicated society uh, that exists. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of things I could talk about around that theme. Um, one thing that came up for me, actually, while you were introducing me in the previous show, uh, you know, Charles Eisenstein has written this book and that book. Charles Eisenstein graduated from here and did this, you know. And and I, I wondered, like, if there's um, kind of a, an implication there, which wouldn't be your fault. It would be more my fault for writing such a blurb. But an implication that, that um, these are more important things or more worthy accomplishments, more notable accomplishments than the kind of invisible things that people do that are not validated and celebrated in our society, that are um, considered in our theory of change to be not important, um, but which are the expressions of the gifts of many, many kinds of people. So, like, I happen to have a certain configuration of giftedness that makes me an effective speaker and writer. Um, and that operates in a fairly public way. So that gets validated, at least by the small subset of society that even pays attention to me. Um, but what if somebody else is, is you know, just, just quote-unquote, uh, a preschool teacher, but is bringing so much love into that, and the kids years later don't even remember her, except there's like this experience of love that's lodged inside of their selves forever. Is she doing something less important? Uh, no. I mean, she it probably over a thousand years' time, probably what she's doing is more important. You know, or what about the, the, the people who, who, you know, work in the homeless shelter or, or work with one, one disabled child? Uh, you know, there, there are so many expressions of our gifts that don't get economic compensation, don't get social validation, don't get, you know, and, and don't even get the um, 
kind of conceptual validation of saying, well, this is a, having a really big impact in the world. Like, you don't get any of that. I think we need to um, revalue those kinds of gifts. We have to give them, um, we have to celebrate them and give them value uh, and embed them in a worldview that says, yeah, these are important. These are changing the cosmos for the good, even if we don't know how. Even if, you know, you see my point? Like, like I could easily make a case for my own work that says, yeah, Charles, you're doing some great thing, you know, because you're writing books and hundreds of thousands of people are reading your writing, so you're changing the world. But if you were just, you know, uh, starting a social enterprise that uh, employs homeless people, well, that's nice, but, you know, unless you make a documentary about it, you're not going to change the world very much. Like, that, I think, is a toxic logic that devalues the kind of gifts that don't operate in a public sphere. But those are the kind of gifts that we need to, to see arising on a scale of millions and, and billions. You know, that's what people have to step forward to embrace. Charles, I want to go more into that when we get back from this break. In a time of social and ecological crisis, what can we as individuals do to make the world a better place? This is a thought-provoking book that serves as an empowering antidote to the cynicism, frustration, and paralysis that so many of us are feeling, replacing it with a grounding reminder of what's true. We are all connected, and our personal choices bear unsuspected transformational power. By fully embracing and practicing this principle of interconnectedness, we become more effective agents of change and have a stronger positive influence on the world. Throughout the book, The More Beautiful World Our Hearts Know is Possible, Charles Eisenstein relates real-life stories that show how small individual acts of courage, kindness, and self-trust can change our culture's guiding narrative of separation, which he explains has has generated the present planetary crisis. Charles brings to conscious awareness a deep wisdom that we innately know until we get ourselves in order and any action we take, no matter how good our intentions, will ultimately be wrong-headed and wrong-hearted. Eisenstein invites us to embrace a radically different understanding of cause and effect, sounding a clarion call to surrender our old worldview so that we can finally create the more beautiful world our hearts know is possible. You can connect with Charles Eisenstein at charleseisenstein.net. We'll be right back. Be visionary. Be extraordinary. Be the change. This is the Seventh Wave Channel on the Voice America Network. Have you seen 1111? Do you wonder why certain numbers keep showing up in your life? 11, 111, 22, 33, 444. People all over the world are seeing 1111 and learning the language of universal communication. Subscribe to 1111 Magazine today. www.1111mag.com. 1111 Magazine is a bi monthly print publication that offers a rich, multi sensory experience. As you engage with experts and topics of consciousness, become enlightened, empowered, and energized so you live a passionate and authentic life of conscious choices. 1111 Magazine, a daily staple for lifting the mindset. 
Discovering the Heart and Stepping into Conscious Living. 1111 Magazine. Order now at www.1111mag.com. 1111mag.com. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. This is the Seventh Wave Channel on the Voice America Network. listening to 1111 Talk Radio. If you would like to join today's discussion, please call in toll-free at 1-866-472-5795. Again, 1-866-472-5795. You may also send an email to Simron at simron-singh.com. Now back to 1111 Talk Radio with Simron Singh. Charles Eisenstein is my guest, and you can connect with him at charleseisenstein.org. We are discussing his book, The More Beautiful World Our Hearts Know is Possible. And I can tell you that equally enriching that you will definitely want your mind and heart to marinate in are his book, Sacred Economics and the Ascent of Humanity. So definitely connect with him at charleseisenstein.net. I'm sorry, charleseisenstein.net, so that you can find out about all of his work and connect with him. We've been talking about the story of intervening, the age of reunion, and there are principles of this new story, and I want to list a few of these out, that your being partakes of your being and that of all other beings, that this goes beyond interdependency. Our very existence is relational, that therefore we do to another, we do to ourselves, that each of us has a unique and necessary gift to give the world, that the purpose of life is to express our gifts, that every act is significant and has an effect on the cosmos, that we are fundamentally unseparate from each other, from all other beings, and from the universe. And every experience we encounter and every experience we have has mirrors of something to ourselves. These are just some of the things that are in the book, The More Beautiful World Our Hearts Know is Possible. Charles, when we left the last segment, we talked about uh, the gifts that people bring and you know, there is an idea, and this is another point that I also brought up in my show, because I did that tour for myself. I did that as a way that I could see myself and express myself and my own emotions and feelings and allow people to understand that we are here, too, to really touch our own hearts and express our own gifts, and that it's not about the number of seats that you fill up in a room, and it's not about the number of books you write, and it's not about the amount of money that ends up in the bank account or the status that we achieve, that it truly is what touches our own heart and soul will touch the heart and soul of many others in ways that we cannot imagine. So how do we change this view that we we hold in society that we must uh, attain something, that we must be seen as something, that there there is a hierarchy or a class to our occupations or our expressions in the world? Well, I guess this change has to happen on several levels. Um, One of them would be the personal level, where you just stop believing in the story that we're offered. Uh, That that disbelief usually starts with um, some aspect of our 
story of our world not working for you. You know, it could be when, when you know, you're supposed to be able to go to the doctor and the doctor will fix your problem, you know, but, uh-huh. but a lot of people now, they're going to the doctor and the doctor says, you don't have a problem. Your tests are fine, but I don't feel well. Well, you know, have some Prozac. Maybe it's all in your head. And, and then eventually the person finally, you know, after years, um, finds someone who says, oh, yeah, you have fibromyalgia, uh, or, oh, yeah, you have chronic Lyme, you know, or one of these new diseases, but we can't really do very much for you. And so that could be, you know, what we're, that could be the event that punctures the balloon uh, of the story that says medical science is basically competent and improving and advancing and making us healthier and healthier and the doctors know what they're doing and they can be trusted and, and you know, like there's a, there's a whole kind of uh, story around that that could get punctured by an event like that. And once that happens, people go through a creeping radicalization where you know, at first they think, well, this is just one uh, faulty system, but the overall system is basically okay. Um, but, but eventually you realize that all of our institutions are interconnected and, and support each other. So, um, so yeah, so, so this personal disbelief in the stories that were offered uh, that say, you know, so-and-so is more important, that validate hierarchies, that validate a certain life path, to personally reject these is, is already very powerful because our complicity in these is very much a willing, uh, maybe unconsciously, but a willing complicity. Uh, it, it's, it's not just that the rules are enforced, uh, sometimes brutally. It's also that we enforce them on ourselves, too, through the internalization of authority, where we feel guilty or ashamed if we, say, don't pay off our debts, something like that. Uh, But you can't just say that the problem is only within our personal consciousness. Uh, That leads to uh, ridiculous things, like, you know, what about the people in the ghetto, you know, who have grown up in poverty, and is that just that they have a faulty consciousness, you know, where people in an impoverished village in Pakistan who are getting bombed by drones, you know, are we just going to dump, dump their suffering onto some doctrine that it's their consciousness that has created that? You know, that's, that's really uh, arrogant. Um, so I think that we also have to uh, work on a collective level, on a social level, community level, political level, to change the systemic manifestations of separation-based thinking, of scarcity-based thinking, of control-based thinking. There's a, a mutual relationship between the self and the collective. And, and to say that it's all about personal consciousness is a statement of separation that says that your personal consciousness is personal, but we are, are you know, we are not just these separate individuals. Uh, we are the, consci- the consciousness of everybody also is part of our own consciousness. So I think we need to work on, on all levels here uh, to change systems as well as to change our own perceptions.
And as you were talking, uh, it, it came to me that as we change that view and, and the way we behave in the world based on that view, we're not just changing ourselves and what is around us, but we're modeling the behaviors for the generations that that will create a new story in them rather than falling back into the same old story that we've lived by. You are the father of four children and at one time was a single father of four. How has your work and, and your belief system and, and proof that you have given them, what what illustrations can you see in them that are being affected by, by the way that you're, you're modeling? Uh, you know, children always... Uh, from what I see, they uh, reveal your blind spots. Mm-hmm. Um, so, like, I'm not going to say that, you know, my children are living proof that my uh, teachings are correct. You know, they've got their issues. But um, I do feel very, very proud of them. And, um you know they're 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 extraordinary in many ways, but I I, I would I would hesitate to say see, <laughs> you know here's how how the uh, the way I live is being passed you know out into the world. Uh, but I think that but don't you think that even by the planting of seeds? Because I mean I I have two children myself, and I can certainly see my own twelve year old. Uh, you know, I, I embarked on this tour this past year, very unconventional, unschooling, all of the things that stepped mm-hmm. out of his box of understanding uh, was then pulled off the road because of the custody battle and the legal system saying, this is unconventional, it's not supposed to work. And I know you yeah. had your own situation uh, where, where, where you were involved with your son, you wrote about it on a blog, and, and how... Um, how the police had to do something. And we, we, we have to work against, or not against these systems, but with these systems to, to still move along on our way, but, but stand for ourselves. And yeah. I do think that that planted seeds, I don't think that they're apparent right now, even in my own son, but don't you think that we, yeah. we are able to then plant the seeds that will show up later yeah, definitely. for those generations? Yeah, the, the incident you were talking about is when I, we, we, I took about onto, onto some ice, during the uh, yes, the uh, polar vortex. You know? Talk about that a little bit, because I well, think that so often as parents we do things, and because we have a, such a commissioned society, it looks that one way, but but uh, the ice, there's a different yeah. experience entirely. The ice was thick. I mean, I jumped up and down on top of it. You know, I I did a little research. You know, I mean, you could have driven a truck out onto that, but the police. You know, someone spotted us out there, called the police, you know, they came, you know, like I got yelled at by like 15 cops surrounding me, um, charged with, um, you know, disorderly conduct and so on. And, and um, you know, fought it in court, was found guilty. The judge was furious at me for even thinking that such a thing was okay. You know, and uh, anyway, it was, you know, compared to like what happens, the, the level of injustice in the society, it was tiny, you know, like people in, in the inner city are getting, you know, arrested, put in jail for the m- most trivial things in, in, in the stop and frisk programs. And, and so it's not a big deal. Like I'm not really, you know, I'm not indignant so much on my own behalf, but um, it was kind of symptomatic of, of a system that, that, it completely devalues, you know, being out into nature, um, like, and puts safety 
it wasn't even so much safety. It's just kind of like this, um, like this um, non-normal behavior. Uh, you know, people just don't do that. You know, but mm. one thing I was really proud of my my oldest son. Um, he was completely not intimidated by authority, uh, by the cops. Uh, not only did he mouth off to one of them, uh, but he was secretly videotaping the, the entire encounter, which um, could have turned out to be very useful. It turned out not to really matter, but uh, like you know, that kind of coolness and self-possession, I felt really good about that. But I, I would hesitate to take credit for it, although maybe... Yeah, I, I, I sometimes people ask me what 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 can I say about raising children, and I think what I practice that I think is important um, is never to manipulate them through shame and conditional approval. You're good if you do this. You're bad if you do that. Um, that that's kind of my my. Uh, because shame, 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 and guilt, uh, primarily shame, is probably the most insidious disease on the planet today, and the most denied uh, disease that each one of us carry. Each, do you feel the same? Yeah, I mean, there's a positive aspect to shame as well. Um, indigenous societies uh, used shame, um, but it was held in a different way. Uh, it wasn't used as an instrument of domination and control. So it was um, it was um, from a foundation of love, like so. There's another aspect of shame. Shame is also the recognition, like it's the it's the piercing of your of your self image. Um, uh, a it's it's a it's a, that breaks down a false story of yourself, a false image, and you can feel when that happens. Those kind of chemical bonds dissolving that held together your self-image and the heat from the breakdown of the chemical bonds rises, you know, and you flush. And so it's, I think that, that it's a very, very primal emotion. So I don't want to say that it's all about uh, control and authority and stuff, but it um, definitely has, has a poisonous effect um, in our society. We do not have a new story yet. Each of us is aware of some of its threads. For example, in most of the things we call alternative, holistic, or ecological today, here and there we see patterns, designs, emerging parts of the fabric. But the new mythos has not yet formed. We will abide for a new time, for a time in the space between stories. It is a very precious, some might say sacred time. Then we are in touch with the real. Each disaster lays bare the reality underneath our stories. The terror of a child, the grief of a mother, the honesty of not knowing why. In such moments, our dormant humanity awakens as we come to each other's aid, human to human, and learn who we are. This is from the book, The More Beautiful World Our Hearts Know is Possible, by Charles Eisenstein. You can find out more about him at charleseisenstein.net. This was part one of a three-part series with Charles Eisenstein. I urge you to check out his work and to join us for the next two parts, which will occur in the next couple of weeks. Until then, in love, of love, with love, and as love, I'm Simran Singh. Be well. Thank you for stepping into the doorway of Conscious Choice. 
with 1111 Talk Radio. Please join host Simran Singh again next Thursday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time for another enlightening edition here on the 7th Wave Network. Remember, shift happens. We'll be right back.